0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our
1: guest today is Nunzio Quackerelli, founder of Quackerelli Simmons, which is a British company that specializes in education and study abroad. Nunzio, thank you so much for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton. It's a pleasure. Uh, you founded Quakerly Simmons back in 1990. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what your objectives were at that time and how they've changed over time.
0: So I founded QS while to Wharton student. So maybe I can just give you a little bit of the, the history because it's, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I came to Wharton with the intention of becoming an entrepreneur, and I spent my two years here uh, really identifying um, an opportunity and I realized that I was passionate about education and there was an opportunity for me to produce publications and provide information in the education space. Wharton provided me with some support. The Entrepreneurial Centre gave me a little office. Uh, I had a great team of students. They worked with me over the two-year period. We won the Moot Corp Business Venture Competition uh, representing Wharton and and the business started here. So um, our, our history is very embedded in Wharton and our mission from the outset really hasn't changed, which is to enable motivated young people around the world to fulfill their potential through educational achievement, uh, international mobility, and career development. So those are the three things that determine everything that QS does, and we are really passionate about it. it, it sort of We touch the lives of, of tens of millions of people around the world, and it's a really nice feeling if you know that you're helping people make the right education choices, that you're helping them progress in their career. That's what we're about. Right. So one of the, again, going back
1: to the days when you first started QS, uh, one of the biggest challenges for any new entrepreneur is uh, raising capital. How did you go about that? So
0: I was lucky (laughs) that I um, identified a business which could be cash positive very early on. And I was also lucky that I was at Wharton. And I had lots of students who were willing to help me and didn't require being paid. <laughs> so my capital was essentially the free time that those students gave me. And I did pay them eventually. So once the, once the business started making a profit, I actually gave a return of a profit to them. But for the first two years, I had probably a dozen Wharton students actually working with me, excited about the project, giving you know, a significant chunk of their time. And we managed to raise money from corporate enterprises, uh, and some educational institutions to fund the initial projects, which were publications. I'd been an editor of some magazines at Cambridge University, and so that was my knowledge area initially, so we produced publications, and they made a profit, really, from, from the get-go. That was very helpful, and, and QS has what, what never kind, what had kind of external funding.
1: What kind of publications were there?
0: So, initially, we published a, a magazine called uh, The MBA Career Guide, which was about career opportunities for MBAs. We then extended it to um, a publication around diversity, so it was looking at um, the opportunities and development paths for minority students in the USA, and we quickly extended to educational publications looking at opportunities in business education and postgraduate education, and that really was what the business did for the first couple of years, and then we quickly evolved.
1: Well, along with raising capital, the other big challenge for any new entrepreneur is picking a leadership team. Uh, uh, since you said you were working with a lot of students, uh, what what how did you recruit your leadership team? What were some of the things you looked for?
0: So I'm I'm a very much a relationship-driven person. So uh, I I look for people who I liked and who were friends and who were shared the passion about education and who were excited about what I was doing. So it was really about sharing the idea, sharing the vision, and saying, do you want to help? And you know, just whatever little bit of spare time you can give me will be appreciated. And different people had different skill sets, and it, it really gelled. And In fact, in the court competition, uh, we took that initial student management team down to Austin, Texas, to, to present our, our business plan. And it was great, great camaraderie, great fun. Um, and yeah, they, they gave of their time voluntarily. It was, it was lovely. Fantastic.
1: So uh, during your entrepreneurial journey, uh, what, what have been some of the key milestones uh, and challenges, and how did you deal with them?
0: So any entrepreneurial journey has challenges, and you know, I like to say that I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I'm a mono-entrepreneur. I founded one business, and I've just grown it, and the challenges have been to... Develop a business organically, um, self-funded. So, um, managing and maintaining cash flow throughout that process, whilst also developing new businesses. So, you know, QS Today has uh, we're the leading uh, event publisher uh, or the event organizer in the higher education space. Over 350 events and conferences. We have the probably the largest um, research organization specializing in higher education worldwide. Over 300. Uh, university clients. We have web platforms that attract over 30 million unique visitors, topuniversities.com and topmba.com. And then we also have a, a technology division which provides software as a service to the higher education industry. Each of those businesses has been funded organically through through our own cash flow and we've had to manage that um, development very carefully. So so cash is always the key issue. In terms of milestones, I think that um, in 1993, shortly after I graduated, we decided to go into the events business. And so achieving success in the events business was, was pivotal in helping the business go from being a small idea to actually an idea with global scale, and global opportunity. Today, as I said, we organize 350 events and conferences in 57 countries. What kinds of events are these? So uh, we started in the MBA space, naturally. So um, a principal event is, is the World MBA Tour. We also run the World Grad School Tour, which is the largest source of internationally mobile postgraduate students. We have the largest um, educator-to-educator conference in the Asia region called QS Apple, QS Age-Pacific Professional Leads in Education Conference. We have the largest edu- educator-to-educator conference in the Middle East called QS Maple, which is Middle East and Africa, Professional Leads in Education. And we're also, we run a number of other conferences um, for, the, for the education industry as well. So it's both student recruitment and professional networking for the education sector. So, so that, as a milestone, moving into this business was pivotal in giving us a global scale and scope. Then, I think, in 2002, I made the decision that I wanted QS not just to be a media company, but also an information and data company. So I had a good friend who was uh, John O'Leary, who was the uh, editor of of Times uh, Higher Education. And together, we got together and said, there's a need for global rankings. University leaders are telling us that they have no basis for comparing their performance across borders. So we spent two years with extensive outreach to those university leaders identifying a suitable methodology. And in 2004, we launched the QS World University Rankings. And in the last decade, that has emerged as the most popular, the most viewed university ranking system in the world. So over 100 million people will view the QS World University Rankings. Around the world. And I'm actually delighted to say that our 2014 15 rankings have launched today. Congratulations. Uh, if I could just ask a question about
1: rankings. Uh, there are so many different publications that do rankings, and some of them are actually, uh, the methodology is somewhat suspect. Uh, I wonder if uh, you can explain what differentiates QS's rankings from the, the,
0: those done by other publications. Absolutely. So I think. QS has invested an enormous amount of time and mental effort in devising a system which is robust, stable, trustworthy, and meaningful. All those are key to the success of the QS World Unity Rankings. So we spent two years outreaching to university leaders to identify suitable metrics for the rankings. We have a system which is based on a global academic survey. Over 60,000 academics responded to our 2014 survey. We also have a global employer survey. So over 30,000, 33,000 employers around the world have responded to our global employer the Largest employer survey that any organization in the world conducts that we're aware of. We then look at bibliometric data in, in a lot of detail. So the number of citations that universities are producing per faculty, and then some other metrics which are important for world-class universities. Um, student-faculty ratio, international faculty student, international student ratios. Those metrics are meaningful. So they're meaningful in the sense that universities have objectives to improve those metrics over time. So if they can see that through QS tracking they are making performance improvement against those metrics, that is a sign of success. So we estimate that over half of the world's top 500 universities actually reference QS data in their strategic plans which I'm very proud of that. It's an incredible fact. So universities are actively able to use our data to, to manage the business of, of their universities, particularly as they orientate towards becoming more globally recognized and more internationally engaged. So what are the outcomes of that? First of all, um, the universities are much more actively engaged in international research collaboration. So uh, QS rankings are not the... the sole driver of that, but they are a factor in, in encouraging research collaboration. And we see today that international research partnerships produce twice the citations per faculty of soulless research activity for a university. So that trend has brought about an incredible acceleration in the generation of quality knowledge, which we're really proud of. Secondly, because we look at the employer opinion, students know that they can look at our rankings and get a perspective on what employers think about university education, not just overall, but we also produce tables for 30 different subject areas. So for the the prospective student audience, it's really valuable to understand these institutions produce quality research, they're also providing employability needs for different segments of employers. That's valuable output. And that that has built not only the, the trust, but also the high involvement of the, the education community. Right. Now, if you were to think
1: about the almost uh, 25 years path that QS has been on, 25 years next year, what would you consider the biggest leadership challenge you have faced? How did you deal with it and what did you learn from it?
0: So there, there have been numerous leadership challenges, but I think that... Um, what I have, the biggest challenge has been to have the majority or all of the Cure staff follow the values that Cure holds dear and to, to make sure that they are um, really passionate about those values. So some of our values, um, cultural sensitivity, I've been preaching that since I founded the company in 1990. And in the early days, people would look at me and say, Milzio, what are you talking about? What is cultural sensitivity? But if you have the ambition to be a global company and you know, you're operating in, in China, dealing with you know, Chinese government officials one day, you know, a few days later you're, you're in Latin America dealing with the Latin um, mentality, then you're off to Saudi Arabia meeting uh, the Arabic culture. You have to really invest time in learning about how people from different societies think and to, to really appreciate how they think in order to develop a relationship. And so I've tried to cultivate that mindset in, in all the people at QS, and it, it, it's a challenge. And, but I think people gradually over time have, have got it. Um, we also have, have a, a, a focus on, on um, innovation. Now, innovation is difficult. How do you champion innovation? You know, we, we've grown organically. Uh, so we have to give people the time and the opportunity in the space to just think in non-productive activities. So you know, we have projects which don't have short-term you know, profit objectives and people who are focused just on, on innovating our, our product suite. And if that, you know, if I had lots of uh, other shareholders who are banging the drum about you know, maximizing shareholder value and achieving maximized profits in the short term, a lot of those innovations may not come about. So in a sense, there's been a benefit to our, our, our structure in that we've been able to, to reinvest um, profits to, to, to really push that innovation and encourage it within the organisation. And then maintaining very customer-focused is critical. So um, one of the things that I, I really encourage us to do is to survey customers after every activity we undertake So now at all our events or any customer, they have an electronic um, digital app they can um, download and they can give us immediate feedback and we monitor that feedback. Um, We take that seriously. There are other values as well, but engaging my team with those values has been very challenging at times. And I've learned that I have to invest a lot of my time in explaining why those values are important and making sure they're followed through. And the most difficult um, value has been team playing. Why? Because, you know, QS is a, is a sales and marketing organization and naturally salespeople tend to be quite independent and, um, competitive. and competitive people. So, you know, what I've learned from that is that you have to create incentives that encourage team playing. It doesn't just happen um, as a matter of course. You really have to work at it, but it's important because it makes a big difference. If you've got a constructive team-playing environment, you're going to thrive. If you don't maintain that environment, things start to unravel.
1: I think that's a really good point. Uh, Nanjee, I wonder if we could shift focus from your entrepreneurial journey in QS into sort of the broader education market in which it operates. Now, one of the things that uh, has been quite striking in the past few years is the extent to which uh, disruption has started to rock. Uh, the education market, especially things like MOOCs or massive open online courses. Now, if you think about some of these changes, to what extent do you think they will, they represent a fundamental disruption uh, for uh, the education institutions and to what extent are they just a complement to existing educational activities? So,
0: it's a great question and I wish I had the answer. I can give you my thoughts and in fact As you know, I'm speaking on Thursday at the um, uh, SEI Centre for Management Studies Advisory Board meeting at Wharton on the future of education. So in effect, this is my topic of discussion. And I'm going to say that um, I'm going to quote Donald Rumsfeld, who unwillingly, but it seems appropriate, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. Some of the known knowns are, you know, the demand for education is, is growing around the world, especially in emerging markets. The international mobility of students and academics is increasing even at an even faster rate. The cost of higher education is, is unsustainable for governments. The rate of, of enhancement of technology in e-learning is, is accelerating. Those are drivers of change. I won't go through the rest of the presentation. There are are lots of unknowns in that, not least how technology will shape future education. But given those drivers of change, I believe that disruption will come, but as you've rightly said, I believe it will be complementary rather than revolutionary. Why do I say that? Well, we've had educational institutions since the time of the Greek Agora, where bright people have gathered together because frankly it's stimulating. As a collective group, you you bounce ideas off each other, you learn from each other. Dean Russell Palmer when I was at Wharton at my inaugural um, talk said you're gonna learn more from your fellow students over the next two years than you are from all our faculty, all your lessons. And he was right. You you need that gathering of bright people to stimulate and to to grow and to push forward knowledge. And for that reason, I think the university as an institution will sustain. I don't believe in these um, doomsday uh, views that, 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 that um, the university will disappear. Secondly, I, I actually think that the, the teacher-student relationship and the delivery of knowledge by a human being is also sustainable. It's actually relatively cheap. Depends what you pay for the teacher. But, but you know, at the basic level, it's, it's actually relatively cheap and remarkably well proven. It stood the test of time. I don't think that's going to go away. I think that blended learning is inevitably going to become part of the natural everyday process of delivery of education. You're going to integrate online learning, video, um, perhaps even um, at the younger age groups, um, video, cartoon, interactive video, uh, game playing. Why? Because It's becoming cheaper to deliver as well. It means that you can actually have the best people in a particular subject area feed into a lecture and make the contribution. It also has the benefit that it can, some of that learning can be done outside the classroom so that classroom time can be better spent on on productive interaction and engagement. So I, I think that's happening already. I think it's going to accelerate. I think the quality of that blended learning is going to improve. The quality of the engagement is going to uh, improve. Then you start looking at more sort of um, advanced changes. So I think that there may well be learner-learner models, where actually you have, um, probably in the MOOC environment, where you actually have the learners sharing knowledge and teaching each other, and even rating and evaluating each other. I think those models. And those, those sort of social models are, are emerging and are likely to be popular. I don't know if they'll ever be degree-bearing, and therefore I don't know if they'll ever substitute, but I think they'll complement. I think you're also going to have to have more evaluation of the quality of e-learning. There's a great deal of e-learning already out there and a great variety of quality. So I think there's a need for organisations like QS to actually look at how you validate and uh, potentially um, rate those online learning programs. We're looking at that. Um, it's a process that we'll go through, but it's, it's uh, a non-trivial challenge. And then finally, I think that you'll probably, probably see a return to more vocational studies delivered through online learning. Because as we said, Higher education is very expensive. The cost to the student is incredible. The average debt for a four-year graduate student in the US today is $31,000. The total cost of that debt is over a trillion dollars. It's more than credit card or auto debt. There are going to be young people who are going to say, I don't want that. I I want to do a vocation and there are lower cost models where maybe I can work and study at the same time. I do think that within the developed economies, like the US, the UK, maybe European Union, that we'll see um, a greater um, trend towards apprenticeships and vocational learning through e-learning platforms. In emerging economies, I actually think they're still at the stage where they want greater higher education outreach. And so, I don't think that trend will be replicated in emerging economies. Those are some of my thoughts.
1: Uh, Now, uh, that's really fascinating. And and given the fact that You have such a ringside view of educational institutions globally. Have you seen any promising pedagogical models emerge that you think will become more dominant over time?
0: So, we are running an award scheme and a conference uh, at Wharton in December. So, I'm I'm honored that um, QS is partnering with Wharton to run the uh, QSTAR Awards, Wharton QSTAR Awards, Reimagine Education. And we have collected a pool of judges from university presidents, e-learning experts, um, the education specialists from Google, Amazon, um, IBM, to be part of that community to look at the most innovative and potentially effective new learning systems. We have received um, between 100 and 150 um, applications from distinct uh, universities and um, private sector organisations. We start the process of evaluation in a couple of weeks' time. So, we haven't gone through that evaluation yet. However, I've, I've started to look through some of them. And I think that there is a a lot happening in, in the area of gamification, where uh, academics are developing uh, game models to encourage um, students to, to go through different learning routes. So That's any examples the, of that? I can't, because I can't name any of the sure, sure. Uh, entrants at this point in time, but... In, at the awards, we will be going through lots of cases. So the conference is the 8th to the 10th of December, and all the shortlisted and winning entries will be showcased. Uh, so it's an opportunity for anyone who's interested to to come and and find out about it. But but gamification seems to be you know, quite popular, particularly in the in the university academic community. Within the private sector, there seem to be um, just a lot of new models for engagement. So it's e-learning, online learning, but just with enhanced engagement and you know, enhanced community creation. And that's why I say the sort of learner-learner model is probably around the corner because there's so much engagement and so many tools to, to, to manage engagement today that, that I think it's, it's inevitable. So those are two things which, which stand out. But there are also you know, interesting use of video so um, I can't again. I can't name an example, but there's a, a ballet school in, in Russia that is using you know real time video, real time playback, um, real time evaluation of videos, um, sort of digitised scoring to see if the body positions are in the right place, exact, to to then give the the ballerinas immediate feedback. That's that's quite interesting use of video technology.
1: Right, right.
0: Um, so lots of interesting things happening. So, uh- to the degree that this,
1: these re- disruptive changes are going on, uh, what kind of threats do educational institutions face
0: and which institutions do you believe will be the most vulnerable? So as I said, I'm, I'm a believer in the sustainability of the university as, a, as an institutional concept. Mm-hmm. I do think that there'll be, and I think that the brand of the university still has enormous value for the employer and for the student, and therefore, you know, the leading brands will maintain preeminence. I do think that there'll be greater volatility in the institutions which have brand recognition. I think it will be much quicker for an institution to achieve acclaim and status than, you know, the sort of 600 years it's taken Cambridge or the the 400 years it's taken Harvard to, to achieve that sort of preeminent position. I'm not sure that new entrants will will achieve leadership, but I think that new entrants can rise to prominence quickly. An example is Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which was only established, um, I think, 20 years ago, and it is already a a, a top 40 institution in the world and and the leading um, university in the Asia-Pacific region by, by our metrics, by QS metrics. So it's had a phenomenal rise to prominence and to prestige. And as you have more technology and the e-learning systems coming into play, I think the ability for innovative universities to really accelerate that brand reputation is there. So so volatility will definitely happen. So given everything you said,
1: I'm going to take you back to your roots at QS and see uh, what are the kind of new opportunities uh, does everything you just described create for QS for the future?
0: So, when you have disruption, it does create opportunity. Uh, I think that you know QS, as a trusted, independent uh, source of information in the education world, will certainly look to provide guidance on the different e-learning um, platforms, different e-learning programs. That is a that is a requirement. The market needs that, and, and we're beholden to to deliver that. I think that uh, as institutions look to evolve their strategies. to to remain competitive or to increase their position in the global landscape, they will look to QS both for data and for strategic guidance on how to do that. And we have a a consulting team within our research arm which is is, uh, progressing very well. So we're seeing that demand. I also think that um, more institutions will be internationally engaged. So if they seek to internationalize, then they will look to QS to support that internationalization program, whether it be through international student recruitment or achieving greater uh, brand recognition. So those are, those are obvious opportunities. I think when we look deeper, we will, we will reflect on, on how technology is shaping the education space, and we'll see if we feel there are opportunities for our technology division to, to be part of that. But that's a, that's a deeper uh, discussion. If you were to
1: dream ahead five to ten years, uh, what do you think q s will look like then
0: so our vision is to be the leading media and information brand in the world you know, we compete with lots of big names I think we're, we're doing a good job of achieving that brand recognition. I know that in China um, universities believe that if you if you want to sort of have an impact in China you need to align with q s because QS rankings are the only thing that Chinese kids look at. So I think to to continue to build our brand and its recognition in markets all around the world, I think the U.S. is probably the market we're least well-known in for a variety of reasons. I think that QS can become much better known in the U.S., have a much bigger impact in the U.S. I think the U.S. education system is, is absolutely outstanding. It is the world leader. But I think it's also a little bit... Um, stuck in in its own path, whether it be because of accreditation or other factors, it hasn't evolved. And I think, you know, if you look at what Asian universities are doing and the pace of change that they're undertaking, this education industry is dynamic. So I think that, you know, QS can um, engage more in supporting US institutions to to truly internationalise and change their focus That would be great. So the the vision for QS is is simply to be the leading media and information brand and to extend our footprint. And I I hope that we continue to to do a good job and that in five years' time we remain the most trusted, uh, independent source of information in the higher education space. That will be enough for me.
1: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.